Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Malott, an antitrust partner at Freshfields in DC and Brussels, and you're listening to Essential Antitrust. There is no question that ESG issues are front of mind right now for many of our clients, and those questions can intersect with antitrust law in unexpected and tricky ways. For this month's episode, I'm going to hand the reins over to Tim Wilkins, who leads our global sustainability team, which is a cross-disciplinary team of transactional, regulatory, and dispute resolution lawyers who advise clients on ESG issues. Tim is going to moderate a discussion among a team of experts on ESG and antitrust who will walk us through the multi-jurisdictional morass. Tim, take it away. Thank you, Jen, for the kind introduction. And uh, we're very excited to dig into this important topic. As Jen mentioned, we've assembled a full group to cover off the various macro and jurisdictional issues raised by the topic. I'm joined by my colleague, Jake Reynolds, from our core sustainability leadership team, as well as Martin McElwee, Sarah Jensen, Justin Stewart-Teitelbaum, and Donna Faye Imadi from our global antitrust and competition practice. So, Jake, let, let me start with you to just kind of set the framework for us. In particular, the recent report from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, made for some startling reading. What does this renewed urgency for more and rapid action to reach net zero greenhouse gases mean for businesses? I think it's really important that we do listen to the IPCC. That, that's, as you say, the global scientific body advising governments on climate change. And if you're working in a carbon intensive industry, energy, transport, aviation, cement, steel, aluminium, chemicals, to pay particularly close attention. It showed again last month that the world is still considerably off track in addressing climate change, notwithstanding the number of global conferences on the matter, the next being in Dubai, of course, later this year in November. So according to the IPCC, somewhere between 3.3 and 3.6 billion people already live in places that are highly vulnerable to climate change, adding to humanitarian crises, driving displacement in all regions, Extreme weather events are putting millions of people at risk of food and water insecurity, particularly in parts of Africa, Asia, Central and South America, and of course, small islands. And an astounding 50 to 75% of the global population is likely to be exposed to life-threatening extreme heat and humidity by 2100. Add to this biodiversity loss, plastics pollution, modern slavery, inequality, conflict. I think you can see why boards are paying attention. The sand is literally shifting in front of their eyes in terms of policy, regulation, activism, investor pressure, customer expectations. It's all adding to pressure to transform, not overnight, but steadily. And it's guided often by the policy in the jurisdictions where they're based. And to a large extent, that is one of the primary pressures. And the EU is generally considered to have the, the toughest policy environment, followed by the US and Asia. So yes, sustainability is really coming in from the cold now. It's moving from tiny CSR teams in the 1990s to lofty chief sustainability officer roles now, board committees on ESG. And I think that's a trend set to continue. It's got to be in, in their colossal challenges indeed. But You've mentioned sort of the speed and expedience point here. How does business focus on that piece, protecting the businesses actually from the future policy and regulatory challenges? Having, I mean, I've worked in sustainability for over 30 years. And the factor that I've seen being 
probably most critical to business action, and as you say, protecting the long-term interests of a company, is collaboration. It's collaboration amongst business peers, through value chains, with policymakers, with customers, with investors, with communities, all forms of collaboration. Pretty much all the corporate milestones that I can really think about have exemplified collaboration. It's from collective voice on the global stage. There's something called the We Mean Business Coalition, for example, which is a great example of a, of a group of companies coming together to put their voice across at these climate conferences. Industry best practices, roadmaps, thought leadership, policy engagement. I've worked on several of those collaborations over the years myself, including deforestation from the banking industry perspective, inequality from an investment perspective, climate change for the insurance industry. And the issues are complex, long-term in many cases, and they're actually bigger than the individual companies involved in the collaborations, even the largest companies in the world. One of the biggest consumer goods companies, by way of example, told me once that it felt powerless to influence the problem of deforestation as its share of the global palm oil market was only 2%. 2% felt yeah. pretty big to me, but point taken, 10% would have made life easier. 20% could have led to a tipping point. But I think it illustrates the need for a collective response more than the sum of the individual parts. And this is where we need to look at competition law, I think, which has been ruffling some of the world's most prominent business collaborations over the last year. I don't think the planet can afford this. We need a mature approach to competition issues that empowers businesses to make breakthroughs on sustainability collectively in many cases, not inhibit them. And we need long-term certainty about this and, and including consistency uh, across different parts of the world. So my summary is global problems need global solutions need global collaborations. And I'm hoping my Freshfields colleagues here on the podcast and help us navigate that uh, competition law to help us get there. Well, that's perfect, Jake. You've put your finger right on the pulse of the heart of this discussion and turning to our antitrust colleagues to help set the framework by which antitrust authorities are looking at it. Sarah, I'm wondering if I can turn to you to just outline the current status of the role of antitrust and competition law. And then perhaps you can bring in Martin so you both can discuss the different perspectives in Europe and UK with respect to sustainability and ESG challenges. Thanks, Tim. The starting point for antitrust and competition authorities is that competition should be the key driver of change and businesses should be vigorously competing with each other to innovate and deliver sustainable solutions for consumers. They're also keen to make sure that new markets for sustainable products develop with really strong competitive dynamics and that consumers are able to make informed choices as markets and businesses go through this big transition. The authorities won't hesitate to step in if they think that anti-competitive conduct is hindering those core objectives and they'll take tough action against companies and sometimes individuals involved even if these initiatives are badged ESG friendly. But on the other hand, the authorities don't want to be seen as roadblocks to legitimate initiatives where businesses have to get together and collaborate in order to deliver solutions at the scale or the pace required to meet the challenges that Jake has just outlined. So some authorities are looking hard at their rules in order to try and help companies do the right thing and collaborate where they need to, but within the confines of antitrust and competition law. On the plus side, many types of collaboration are unlikely to fall foul of competition law if they're carefully designed and monitored. Typical examples are companies signing up to voluntary codes or standards if certain conditions are met, 
which essentially ensure fair and open access for everyone that wants to take part. And at the other end of the scale, certain types of collaboration may well run into problems. Alarm bells should ring if companies restrict their commercial freedom to innovate or to set their own prices, or if they're sharing competitively sensitive information, or if the aim or the effect of the collaboration is to eliminate a competitor from the market. The challenge we're seeing in practice more and more is that if a collaboration has some kind of negative effect on the market or consumers, such as increased prices or reduced choice, even if short term, and that's not uncommon where companies are investing in new technologies or they're trying to phase out unsustainable products or processes. In those types of cases, the companies are having to balance these negative effects with the environmental or sustainable benefits that might accrue. And that can be difficult in these types of initiatives because these benefits might accrue over a very long time period, possibly only for future generations. So their long term can be difficult to predict and difficult to quantify. So some authorities are looking at this and trying to help companies by developing guidelines on the types of benefits that can be taken into account and the types of arrangements which could benefit from some kind of safe harbour. The difficulty is that there are differences of opinion on some really key aspects of the rules which we'll come on to. And that can be a problem in this area which is politically charged and where disaffected groups may rush to bring claims or complaints if they think that companies are acting anti-competitively. So I'm going to ask Martin, if we stay in Europe to start with, the EU has announced some really ambitious policies to stimulate the investment needed to reach net zero by 2050 including its recently unveiled Net Zero Industry Act and also a significant loosening of its state aid rules for green investments. So, Martin, is the Commission also flexing its antitrust rules to help companies get together and collaborate on ESG projects? It's certainly the case that the Commission has felt the need to engage with this agenda. And ever since it announced its Green Deal back in 2019, it has been looking hard at whether the competition rules need any changes to support the transition, but they haven't really gone so far yet as to flex the rules for ESG collaborations, principally for the reasons outlined earlier. In the words of the Competition Commissioner, it's the need to compete that pushes companies to do more to meet consumers' needs. And we need to support the green transition by enforcing our rules more vigorously than ever. Quite a strong statement. Well, they have taken steps, as you say, to help companies enter into legitimate collaborations by publishing draft guidance, which I think does set out quite a helpful framework for collaborations that are unlikely to raise concerns, including a soft safe harbour for voluntary standards. They've also taken quite a broad approach to the concept of sustainability. So a wide range of benefits can be taken into account if companies are having to carry out the balancing exercise that you mentioned, Sarah, provided, of course, that those benefits are substantiated with objective, concrete and verifiable evidence. The real sticking point at the moment, though, is whether the Commission is prepared to flex its traditional approach to what is one of the most central criteria under European competition law, if an agreement with an anti-competitive effect is going to benefit from an exemption because of those benefits. And that's the criteria that customers, consumers, 
must receive a fair share of those benefits, such as better quality products or lower costs. So the effect on them is at best uh, or at least neutral. The Commission's traditional approach has been it must be the same consumers who are affected by the restriction who get the benefits so that they are fully compensated for any harm. And that means that apart from a few limited cases, benefits to wider society like reduced emissions or a quicker transition to net zero can't be taken into account. The Commission's concern is really that departing from this approach is a bit of a slippery slope such that other societal concerns like human rights, labour rights, animal welfare, or who knows, could be brought into play, leading to a watering down of what has been a very long-standing standard for the European Commission in Competition Law, the consumer welfare principle. And that's what's behind this idea, that it's the same consumers who must receive the benefits who suffer the harm. But there is a bit of pressure on them, of course, not least, I think, because other authorities are now taking a more progressive approach. And perhaps you, Sarah, might want to talk through some of those. Yeah, I mean, I mean, here in the UK, for example, I mean, the competition authorities, and, and by that I mean the Competition and Markets Authority, which is the primary body here in the UK, but also there's a number of sector regulators who have concurrent powers to enforce competition law in the UK. Since Brexit, those authorities have been free to adopt policies which diverge from the Commission. And, you know, we've, we've seen very few examples so far, but, but a very good example is the CMA has taken that opportunity and recently announced a new approach towards uh, environmental sustainability agreements, which actually does diverge in some aspects with the approach the Commission has so far proposed. Now, UK competition law is still very much modelled on and largely aligned with EU law. And the same goes to the approach that the CMA will take to most environmental sustainability agreements. But they've taken one important exception to that, and that's for a class of agreements which they call climate change agreements. And those are agreements that contribute to the UK's binding climate change targets under domestic or international law. Now, for those specific category of agreements, the CMA has said that they will take a more flexible approach to this fair share criteria that you just outlined, in that they will take into account the totality of benefits to all UK consumers arising from the agreement, provided sort of certain conditions are set, obviously. And now it's taking this approach because what it calls the sheer magnitude of the risk that climate change represents and the degree of public concern about it. So this is clearly a limited exception to the usual rule, but is obviously very welcome for many sort of businesses engaged in these, these agreements. I mean, the CMA has also taken a very helpful approach to asking companies to come in and offering informal guidance if they need comfort on particular initiatives. And they've said that if they don't have concerns about those initiatives or if they did have concerns and they have addressed, they won't fine the companies if it subsequently transpires that competition law has been breached. They've also said they won't take enforcement action against companies engaged in agreements which are consistent with the principles that they've set out in this guidance. Now, this doesn't provide companies with complete comfort because disaffected groups can still bring standalone claims for damages in court. But these are very helpful developments from the CMA, as well as the Commission and other authorities in Europe. Although, as we said, these are, there are some important differences of opinion, which will hopefully be ironed out. And, and some good developments um, expected over the next few months, including the European Commission publishing its final guidance, which we're expecting to see in June.
Yeah, Sarah and Martin, this is terrific to hear global pressures in this issue because Jake set us up quite well in stating that this is clearly a global issue and to see um, these slight variations, but very much each of the competition authorities looking across borders to see what others might be doing. So with the concepts around the consumer welfare principle and then a potential exception for climate change agreements, it's fascinating. But of course, we do have to go over to the United States to truly have a a, a global approach here. And uh, I'd love to bring in Justin and Donna Fay at this point. And Justin, maybe you can start us um, by giving us a bit of the lay of the land. And of course, in the U.S., you have both issues at a federal level as well as at a state level, but maybe kicking off on the federal level, if you would, Justin. Sure, Tim. Happy to. From the federal agencies, we continue to see the anticipated approach that the U.S. antitrust laws can and should be applied to ESG initiatives and actions. The U.S. FTC and DOJ have repeatedly noted that there are no exemptions to U.S. antitrust laws and that anti-competitive collusion, if found in any sector, would be treated principally the same, irrespective of its ESG objectives. This is not surprising. However, as Martin and Sarah noted, this is in stark contrast to the EU and CMA approaches which have embraced issuing guidelines to the market in order to foster an environment where antitrust law does not become a force for dissuading legitimate efforts to address climate change across various sectors. Despite the lack of explicit guidance from the U.S. antitrust enforcement agencies, the Biden administration more broadly continues to embrace ESG-focused goals and policies, including through major legislation such as the Inflation Reduction Act. Additionally, the Biden administration has played a bit of defense in issuing President Biden's first presidential veto squarely within the ESG debate, rejecting proposed legislation from Congress that would have prevented pension fund managers from basing investment decisions on ESG factors such as climate change. Yeah, I mean, and so it's interesting to see that if I could summarize at the federal level, we're still pretty much at status quo, although we are seeing some activity from the Biden administration, but nothing more formal. But uh, what about at the state level? It's a great question, Tim, and I'd say it's anything but status quo. And this is an area of clear interest and debate. Over recent months, we've seen state attorneys general on the Republican side become much more active in pursuing enforcement actions on ESG. A group of state AGs have threatened and opened multifaceted investigations and continue to focus on this issue, including ESG-based collaborations and alliances, both in respect to the politics and allegations of anti-competitive behavior. We anticipate seeing continued proliferation of these investigations and potential enforcement actions based on such allegations. Additionally, we continue to anticipate state focus on this from the Republican states and state houses who have already been active in introducing so-called no-ESG investment legislation limiting the ability of state government, including public retirement plans, to do business with entities that are identified as allegedly, quote, boycotting certain industries based on ESG criteria or companies that consider ESG factors in their investment processes. This has also led to measures in some Republican states to pull money out of state pension funds due to the backlash on ESG investing by those funds. So as you noted, Tim, the intersection of anti-ESG and antitrust will remain an area of high activity at the state level. Thank you. Well, our businesses who are listening in certainly see the legal frameworks as having some challenges. But Donna Faye, I'm wondering if you can help us just sort of practically, how does a business work their way through these issues? 
Well, you know, as Justin just laid out there, these issues have resulted in a fair amount of challenging tension between pursuing these ESG efforts and initiatives and this risk of antitrust enforcement actions or challenges even by private plaintiffs. And so these actions refer to by the state AGs and even the House Judiciary Committee have resulted in consternation and confusion with respect to various organizations pursuing these ESG initiatives. This is irrespective of the facts that U.S. antitrust laws provide various flexible approaches to collaborating, both in the ESG space and beyond. For example, they provide flexible approaches such as within trade associations and standard essential patents. Although material actions have yet been brought against companies who are pursuing ESG-related alliances or activities, these differences in opinion are likely to only proliferate, putting individual companies as well as collaborative organizations in a position where they should be keen to ensure that they continue to operate within the antitrust laws as traditionally enforced in the U.S. whilst pursuing these climate-related goals or sustainability portfolios. Yeah, that makes sense, Sanofi. But so now we have kind of a patchwork, um, thinking with the full team in mind, but maybe, Donna, you can start us with this, of the regulatory frameworks, um, approaches, ESG in the US and EU and UK. But how are we advising clients who are international clients on how to remain in global compliance and, and what they might expect coming down the line? Well, a key rule of thumb that companies should keep central to their strategy is that as long as they are acting unilaterally and independently, they may participate in collaborative efforts. As noted earlier, the U.S. antitrust laws do allow for some flexibility and collaboration, including in commonplace areas such as standard setting and trade associations. So the key here for companies is to remain ensuring that each of their decision-making processes is unilateral and independent, even within such collaborative efforts. In terms of what companies may expect, risk remains heightened in this area given the political dynamic in the U.S., particularly with the presidential election forthcoming. The next election will illuminate how this issue may be drawn deeper in the sand across party lines, particularly, as Justin noted, it's already been reflected within President Biden's first major veto on a Department of Labor rule pertaining to accounting for ESG measures within their metrics. In the U.S., it's unlikely that clear guidelines will come from the agencies themselves, and this will remain a significant issue in terms of actions coming more prolifically from the state AGs and potentially the executive, depending on the administration. But nonetheless, companies should know that the law is clear. So long as members are acting unilaterally, that will aid in their continuance to do everything to mitigate ultimate liability risk, notwithstanding political rhetoric in the United States as it stands. Thank you, Donna Faye. So our listeners will have to watch the political wins a little bit here and the presidential election in the U.S. always grounds for lots of activity and interest. But Martin, I'm wondering now, you know, we've sort of done this tour around different jurisdictions. If you were stepping back and just trying to think of a, a key takeaway for business, any thoughts? Yes, well, to return to where Jake began, we've got a global problem requiring a global solution, but not yet global consensus on how antitrust fits around that. But within that, we have got a rapidly shifting set of scenarios and where things are developing as rapidly as this, it is important that companies 
make sure they have a close understanding of how policies and rules are applying to their businesses. While collaboration seems to be imperative, it is exactly that collaboration that attracts antitrust scrutiny and understanding how in each jurisdiction is really important. That means that businesses need a careful individual assessment and a regulatory strategy overall that identifies who are their key stakeholders, what are the risks of enforcement action or litigation in each of those jurisdictions. Not an easy line to tread, but it can be done with careful forethought. Thank you very much. Well, I think that's a great place for us to leave it here. Thank you, Martin, for that. And to my colleagues, Jake, Sarah, Justin, and Donna Fay. It's been a pleasure to be a part of the Antitrust Essentials podcast, and we hope you'll tune in again for more legal and practical insights for your business. Thank you very much.